Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and my normal role at the New Books Network is as the host of New Books and Genocide Studies. But today, I'm pinch-hitting as the host for New Books in History. The sports metaphor is appropriate, as our guest today is Susan Ware, who has written a brilliant new book titled Game, Set, Match, Billie Jean King and the Revolution in Women's Sports, published by the University of North Carolina Press. In the book, she uses Billie Jean King and the Battle of the Sexes as a lens through which to view the emergence of women's sports and the way that intersected with broader currents in American society and politics in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. It's a wonderful book, and I'm greatly looking forward to talking with Susan about it. So with that, Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We are thrilled. So let's start um, by just giving you a chance to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I think the way to start is that uh, my training is in women's history, uh, especially the history of feminism, but I'm also someone who is just of an age um, where I missed the women's sports revolution, and I would have loved to have had the opportunities that um, the younger generations have had, and so I've always wanted to find a topic that allowed me to combine my interests in women's history and the history of feminism with my own personal interest in sports for women. And luckily, this uh, topic, using Billie Jean King uh, to tell that story, worked perfectly. Uh, but I think the, the reason I felt I could take on this, this kind of a topic is that I really have in my past work um, really developed kind of a niche as a biographer who does, who, who sets a figure in women's history in the broader framework of the 20th century. And I think the best example of that is a book I did about Amelia Earhart called Still Missing, Amelia Earhart and the Search for Modern Feminism. And I'm quite fond of using a a historical figure, hopefully one who's of interest to a wide range of readers, and then placing her in that larger context and using her life as a way of telling readers about some important patterns in women's history. And so I was pretty sure that Billie Jean King was going to be almost as good a subject as <laughs> Amelia Earhart, and in fact, she turned out to be. So, so 40 years, roughly dating back to this famous match with Bobby Riggs, isn't really that long historically. It's long enough that, that many of our listeners will be people who've heard the name Billie Jean King, but, but never seen her play, perhaps never seen her interviewed, and not aren't really clear on who she is and what she did. So, so if we can, let's just start out quickly by, by asking you to give us a sense of who Billie Jean King was and, and, and what she accomplished as an athlete. Well, I think we need to backtrack just a bit, Kelly, because sure. I think there probably a lot of our audience really don't know at all who Billie Jean King is and mm-hmm. don't know that she's still alive. The first time somebody asked me some young thing, is she still alive? <laughs> I thought it was just so hard because, of course, she was one of my idols growing up, and, and she is alive and going strong. She just had her 70th birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, but where she really came to prominence is in the late 1960s and, and early 1970s, which was in a, a formative period for the the um, the tennis um, industry, and up until 1968, the whole world of tennis was very genteel. Think you know everything was white: the players, the balls, the outfits. It was played in country clubs. It was an amateur sport. Nobody was paid. Well, they were paid under the table, but you couldn't make a living at it. And then, partly because of her advocacy and the advocacy of some of the male players. 
about in around 1968 to 1970s, that world just broke open and we saw the explosion of professional tennis. And she was one of the leading figures. Now, what's so interesting for me about her is that not only was she battling to get tennis taken seriously as a sport, she found that she had to fight the male establishment in the tennis world to take women's tennis seriously. And that was what she really did. Uh, and one of the, of course, one of the best examples is this match that she played with Bobby Riggs. And you're right, it is a little hard to explain to people 40 years later why we took this so seriously. I, mean, I can remember exactly where I was when I watched it. She's 29 years old. She's the top women's player in the world. And on national TV, she is playing a battle of the sexes match with a 55-year-old guy named Bobby Riggs, who had been a top player in his day. And it seems like this would be a no-brainer. Of course she would beat him. <laughs> and a lot of people thought that, and a lot of men, I think, were rooting for that. And she just trounced him, uh, straight sets. Mm. And, you know, and it really, it really was such an important popular culture moment because it was the kind of thing where everybody watched it. You know, this is the time when there was no cable, there was no internet. Mm -hmm. You watch it on TV, people are talking about it. And at the end of two hours, there's a winner. She won. And because it was a time when the feminist movement was really, really taking off, her victory was seen as a victory for women. And it, and she also very much pitched it in those terms. And it's not as if she had lost to Bobby Riggs, God forbid, um, that the feminism wouldn't have, wouldn't have happened. But there was a way in which her ability to rise to the occasion, to make the statement that women were just as capable as men, was a very important political statement, and it was a very important feminist statement. And so that, I think, is the moment for which she has, is best known. Of course, mm -hmm. for her, she's, she's just an athlete to the core. I think she thinks of it as sort of a diversion. You know, she knew why it was important. She, she didn't play especially well, but she did as well as she needed to. But I think she would point to the, I think it's 19 Wimbledon titles that she mm -hmm. won over the course of her career uh, and U.S. Open titles really through the 1960s, starting about 1965 through the end of the 70s. And she was a dominant player. Uh, and then just in terms of the generations to come, she's really the next dominant players to come along are Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. And then it's Steffi Graf, and you sort of move your way up towards the present, all the way up to Serena Williams. And mm -hmm. there's a very clear link between Billie Jean King and Serena Williams and Venus Williams. And the, both Williams sisters know what a debt they owe to Billie Jean King for getting women's professional tennis set up, getting it the um, publicity and sponsorship and the big money to be had. We wouldn't have a Serena Williams without Billie Jean King. Yeah, I was really struck this morning by uh, by watching an ESPN story that about, I think it was Venus Williams, essentially suggesting that Venus Williams' career is almost over and we're, we're moving into another generation of women's tennis players. Um, how did how did Kings ended up end up playing Riggs? How did this match come about? Well, he had. Um I think he was sort of on the sidelines as all of a sudden there was this money to be made in tennis. And remember, he was from the amateur um, era. And he, but he was also a huckster. He was a promoter. He would bet on anything. And I think he saw an opportunity. And he really realized that he could say these outrageous things like women should be pregnant and in the kitchen rather than on plain 
tennis, uh, things like that. And it got him a lot of attention. And um, he first challenged Billie Jean, and she said, no way, what have I got to win? What am I going to get out of this? Go away, Billy, Bobby. Then he, char- he challenged Margaret Court, who is the Australian hmm. player, and he trashed her. He beat her, I think it was 6-1, 6-0, on national TV. It was a disaster. He just out, he outsiked her. And so once that happened, I think Billie Jean King knew that <laughs> to uphold the honor of women yeah. tennis, she had to do this match, and she had to win. And I think one of the things that, I, that really came through when I was researching the book was you have a sense of just how focused she is as an athlete. She knew what she had to do. She loves pressure. I mean, pressure for her is, is like a stimulus, uh, mm-hmm. and she knew that she had to stay focused on her game. She couldn't think about the fact that 40 million people were watching this on national TV and millions of dollars were being bet. She just stayed in the moment, played each point. And, and that's, I think, the measure of a, of a true athlete, to be able to just get it done. And, and she did. So you use this match, and, and Billie Jean King in general is a lens. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about where you, you started to talk about this with tennis. Let's expand the, the, the scope and, and, and let me ask you to talk a little bit about where women's sports in general were in the early 1970s. Very much in an embryonic stage. Uh, it's, it's really quite amazing to go back and look at what was accepted in terms of women's sports. And basically that would be looking at a sports budget for a school and 99% of the money would go to men's sports and maybe 1% if that would go to girls and women's sports. There might or might not be competitive teams. Uh, Often the girls had to buy their own uniforms. If there were coaches, usually the coach drove the team to the, if there was a game in her own station wagon. It was, it was like high schools, like, it was like intramurals. And, um, so that there was a, just so much that needed to be done. And what was so interesting to me as a historian and also having lived through this period is how nobody Nobody saw this as an issue. It was just the way things were. Of course, boys should have opportunities, but girls, well, they don't want to play sports, do they? Or (laughs) they're too weak, or they shouldn't play when they have their periods, or if they play too much and they get too masculine, or if they beat a guy, well, who's ever going to want to marry them? And there are all these stereotypes (laughs) that people are still saying. And it, what it means is that nobody then really just took a good hard look at the whole sports world and said, and said, this is inherently unfair that all of the resources are going to the boys and men and hardly any to the girls and women. And one of the things that really was a spur to opening people's eyes was a piece of federal legislation called Title IX. Mm-hmm. And... Title IX, the phrase now is practically synonymous with women's sports, but at the time, the law, when it was passed in 1972, was a a law generally prohibiting discrimination in educational institutions. It followed up on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which had been so important for African-American citizens in terms of um, banning employment discrimination, Uh, but it didn't cover educational institutions. And so it was put through as part of a sort of push to make laws more um, equitable in terms of of gender and sex. But at the time, nobody had a clue that it was going to have any impact on athletics. And the reason was because people... It was supposed to... The threat was if you, if you were discriminating, you would lose federal money. Well, athletics doesn't get federal money for its programs, and yet the way the law was written, it applies to the whole institution, not just to the program that's getting the funds. And so, in fact, the area of modern educational institutions that was most discriminatory turned out to be sports, 
And so that set in motion a true revolution, which is still going on, where women's sports participation went from basically zero to it's up close to 40% now. Um, Still a long way to go, I would add. Um, But it really happened. And And the real breakout decade was the 1970s. And so... For me, as an author, I've got all these things happening at once. I've got Title IX, I've got the revival of feminism, and then I've got Billie Jean King at the height of her career to sort of provide a human face. And it wasn't that I had to sort of stick her in the story. She put herself right in the center of the story. And one of the things I think is very impressive about her is that if you think about tennis players today or most sports figures, they tend to steer pretty clear of politics or of taking Mm -hmm. stands. I mean, a few have come out on issues, you know, like with gay issues with coming up with the, the Olympics. But in general, they're pretty mute And that was not Billie Jean King's way. I mean, she really made it clear what she was fighting for. Um, and she put her, she put her celebrity at, made it available to the causes that she really cared about. Uh, and that is, that's a pretty, pretty amazing legacy. Yeah. Um, and she does this in some specific ways that you talk about that, that, um, that I want to get to back back to in a minute, but if if you don't mind, let me linger on Title IX just for a minute because because it takes a while for Title IX actually to to have a significant effect, at least legally. Can you talk about how Title IX is conceptualized um, and applied in the seventies and early eighties? Well, I think one 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 reason it did take a while is that. As I said, they they weren't thinking it would apply to athletics, yeah. and then all of a sudden they had to think, well, how how do we how do we implement this? And if you go back to the parallel of civil rights, uh, there, what you the dominant way of proceeding is you just say discrimination on the basis of sex, like race, is to be prohibited. Well, it's a little trickier in sports because if you just treated everybody the same, then what would happen to women's teams and what would happen to men's teams? And at that point, there was a real sense that if women were just told to try out for the men's teams, that women's sports would just go away. There would be no opportunities. And so quite a lot of advocates for women's sports were appalled at that. And so, but so then they had to figure out how to implement this law that basically goes back, and this is ironic, to the separate but equal, which was the whole way that racial segregation used to work. Um, but it also took a long time for the, the, um, I think it was HEW was in charge of it in the 70s to write the guidelines to get the get the guidelines out to the schools. Schools then say, "Oh, we couldn't possibly do this," and it, it does it does drag on. Um, but it is a federal law, and that's and it has been a powerful tool. And I guess what I would say is that there's an image that uh, Donna Lopiano uses. She's one of the activists in this field. And she said, well, it's like a guillotine sitting out in the courtyard. You don't necessarily use it, but it's there. And, and in fact, the way to get compliance with a law like this is for people voluntarily to realize they need to go along with it. You can't go out and sue every school district and every yeah. university in the country. Um, so it's kind of a two steps forward, one step back, and it's it's an ongoing process. Uh, you know, at some point you can have another show which talks about the controversial and conflicted history of Title IX. Oh, yeah. but it is still, I think, a very important force to remind us that women's sports deserve the same or comparable uh, resources that men's do. And one of the things, at least as I read your book, you point out is is that Title IX is extremely important, but it's not the only thing going on, that, that you have this explosion of opportunities for girls and women who want to play sport in the early and mid-1970s, and, and, and then that explosion kind of levels off. Why, why did that 
expansion of opportunities happen even at a point where Title IX was just at the stage of having compliance negotiated and, and, and having kind of various attempts to um, cut the legislation off at the knees. And, uh, well, I mean, why did it expand so much or yeah, why did well, it stall? Those are two different questions. I well, let's start out with why it expanded. I, well, I think there, there's a, a pent-up demand. If you, if you talk to older women and very often you find a thwarted sports girl some or tomboy, although that's I hate that word. Um, some a girl who started off playing baseball with her brothers and then was told it wasn't lately liked him to go home or who really wanted to play uh, on a basketball team and that at a certain point either there are no programs or there um, she gets discouraged and she stops wanting to do it. Whereas boys even if they don't want to do sports in our culture, are encouraged to do it. So I think there were quite a lot of ready-to-be athletes that were female out there, and that they are the ones who finally said, great, now my school is going to have to give us a soccer team, and they're going to have to give us a softball team, and we get to play basketball and go you know, to the state tournament. And so there is a whole kind of explosion that's all of a sudden opportunities that weren't there before. Um, and then it definitely does stall, I think partly because it becomes clear how difficult it really is to provide equal um, access and opportunities in sports. It's a costly undertaking. Um, and also in the 1980s, the political climate is more conservative. The Reagan administration was very hostile to enforcing civil rights legislation broadly defined. That had an impact on Title IX. I think there were also broader developments in the sports world. The 1979 founding of ESPN, I think, is a good example of just how the kind of corporate commercialization of certain big-time sports, especially football and, and men's basketball, that's just going to really change. Well, here's another sports metaphor for it. It changes the pl <laughs> playing field. Um, and so I think all those things do come together. And yet, it doesn't go back. The opportunities, once you've mm -hmm. opened people's eyes to this, and I think it's a perfect it's a perfect way to get people to think about questions of equity and fairness. Because if you can say to them, look, the girls team has these resources and they went downstate. The boys team, which hasn't won a game in you know two years, they get new uniforms and they have a bus to take them to games. Is that fair? And actually kids are really good at at articulating that no, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an important concept or insight. And when when it's about gender, that's really the essence of feminism. And so when people say, "Oh, I'm not a feminist," or feminism isn't isn't important, and we don't we don't want to support it. Well, when you present them with something concrete like sports, very often they come pretty close to that position, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask, what what exactly is the relationship between the broader women's movement in the 60s and especially the 70s and women's sports during that period? Well, it's not as close as you might think uh, and not as close as I would have thought. And remember when we started this interview, I said that you know, I, I started off studying women's history and that's also when I got interested in sports on my own. I started running and I started playing tennis. And so for me, as a feminist historian, sports and feminism and history have always been very closely linked. But I realized that among many of my historian friends, that they aren't as interested in sports uh, and never have been. And so I'm kind of an oddity. And, and then, <laughs> then when I talk to young women athletes today, um, they're often so focused on their training and their specific sport, they don't consider themselves 
feminists at all, and sometimes they're mm-hmm. quite hostile to it. Uh, so I think in some ways I'm kind of an anomaly. But I would argue, and I do in the book, that I think a feminist perspective is very important for the sports world because it raises these questions of, of equity. And I think that bringing into modern feminism real women's bodies, you know, bodies yeah. that move and run and swim and hit. It's, it's in some ways, this disconnect is like the old mind-body split. That mm-hmm. Feminism has been more concerned with ideas and theories, and sports has been concerned with actions and movement, and I think the two really need to be brought together. Uh, and that is something, I think, also that, that Billie Jean King believes, although she would get frustrated with the feminist movement for not being more interested in sports. And Mm. she had this great phrase where she accused them of thinking only from the neck up, (laughs) which was not a compliment. (laughs) I have to say, I did appreciate the uh, footnote you have tucked back in the back of the book where you suggest that your, um, I don't remember if you said your gym teacher or your physical education teacher in high school would have been surprised to have seen your your interest in sports blossom as you grew older. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, you know, I grew up in the days of girls sports where we had to wear those bloomer outfits. Mm -hmm. And I think that'll put a damper on anyone's interest. (laughs) So, So one of the questions that the women's movement has to address then is, is what exactly equality means with regards to sport? Is there some kind of consensus among the, the people in the women's movement who are thinking about this issue about that question, or is there a disagreement? I think there's definitely not a consensus. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's something as strong as disagreement. I think it's more of a non-issue. That the disconnect that I saw in the 1970s, I think, is still um, still pretty much going on today. Uh, and I think that you know, there's certainly a lot of attention to Title IX, but it isn't often seen in the broader, uh, broader context of, of feminism. And of course, feminism has changed since the 1970s. So it's mm-hmm. you got a lot of balls that you're juggling here and yeah. trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and I think there is also a certain sense that so much has changed, and and Billie Jean King talks about this. So it's just in her lifetime, in my lifetime the new opportunities for women in sports. They're just, they are revolutionary. And there's a way in which young girls, I think, take these for granted or don't quite realize how recently these opportunities have been offered. And so there's a a tendency towards complacency or just thinking that the, the revolution has been won and women now do have equality when it comes to sports. Well, that is definitely not true. Um, And so I think the challenge is to build on the huge changes that have already happened, but keep moving forward because I'm convinced that if we don't, it's going to slip back and it will default to privileging white male sports if Mm -hmm. if the advocacy doesn't continue to be loud and clear. And that's why Title IX is still so important. And that's actually what Billie Jean King is still doing. I mean, she's out there on the hustings talking for the Women's Sports Foundation about the need for girls to be active and for Title IX to be to be strong. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that I actually find found interesting about doing a biography of her. Mm-hmm. Writing about sports figures is challenging because in general, they have a fairly short shelf life. Their career is maybe 15 years, maybe 20. And then there is this point at which they can no longer perform at the top level and either they retire or go into coaching or, or do something else. But it's often a very hard transition for them because they've, they've been so invested in the sports world. And I think what's interesting about Billie Jean King is that she managed to make a transition from her active days as a player when she was very much in the public eye mm-hmm. to retool herself, keep herself in the public eye as an advocate for women's sports. And this way, she 
has been able to um, keep herself in the limelight, which she, she loves. She loves it when people come up to her and say, are you Billie Jean King? I remember when you beat Bobby Riggs. I mean, she sort of needs it. She calls it what she called love hugs. <laughs> that she just needs to be surrounded by fans. Uh-huh. Uh, and she's been able to, to do that. And then she's also now, at the very end of her life, had sort of a second career as an icon in the gay movement uh, once she finally came out as a lesbian. And so she gets the adulation there. But it's it's a hard trick. Most athletes can't keep themselves in the public eye so consistently throughout their career. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really, she really works at it, but she, she puts, she gives so much back, um, to the world of sports, uh, and, and also to helping women. Well, let's, let's pursue some of those issues a little bit more. You, you, you write in your book that, that Billie Jean King did, did have a sense of herself as a leader in the women's sports movement. How did she try to, um, to move the sports culture and to move kind of the institutions of sports toward um, a structure and a culture that was more um, more favorable to or more fair to women. Well, I think that that her main priority was is and will always be tennis. That's where her mm-hmm. heart is, and she really worked very hard through founding the the women's the union, the Women's Tennis Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, and working with the USTA to make sure that the women's tournaments were on par with the men to get women equal pay. She got the U.S. Open to pay women the same prize money as men as early, I think it was 1973. Hmm. Wimbledon only did that two years ago. Uh, And it was because she was there advocating. And so she's really, I think, trying to work within tennis, build it up. But of course, the ironic thing is that no other women's sports sport offers the kind of professional opportunities that tennis do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partly because tennis had its breakout period in the 70s before ESPN and before football took over the world. And <laughs> and also because some of these later women's sports that have tried to break into that world, like the Women's Basketball League or women's soccer, um, it's been much harder because it's a much bigger, more money-driven world. Mm-hmm. Um, and tennis can hold its own in that. And um, so I think that's where her priority was. She also very much is a, a public advocate through her the organization she founded, the Women's Sports Foundation. And mm-hmm. uh, that has been a constant in her life since she founded it in 1974. So, uh, and they're still going strong. Uh, as advocates for Title IX and also now really talking about the importance of girls serving programs, especially at the middle school range, get them active then and keep them active. Of course, not everything she tried to do worked perfectly, at least not initially. And so she starts to, to, to or she attempts along with her husband to, 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 well, she does found a magazine that kind of flounders for a while. Uh, Flounders may be too strong a word, but but doesn't achieve the kind of success she was with, she would wish, mm-hmm. and and she tries to make tennis a a, a team sport. Um, how do those fit in? Well, I think she's also, you know, I I think one way to think of her is as Billie Jean King Incorporated. She's yeah. like a corporate entity, and her husband Larry was her business manager, and so. And remember, in those days, the tennis purses were so much smaller than today. And she really had to think about having some business opportunities. So she tried the women's sports magazine, and it lasted for, I think, mean, it limped along for a while. And then, of course, remember that Sports Illustrated tried a magazine like that about 10 years ago. It flopped. It's it's a hard market um, to to hit and of course the world of magazine publishing has kind of the bottom has fallen out of it but that's another another issue I think in terms of of world team tennis 
um, it, that too is limping along. And I have to say, I I remember going to one of the early um, incarnations in the 1970s, and it was amusing because you had all these players on the on the court at the same time. But when I look back at it, it really is quite an intriguing idea because what she has done is come up with a way of having a tennis match that values men's and women's contributions equally. I mean, there's women's singles, there's men's singles, each counts as much, there's mixed doubles. And so you've got a way that you've really made tennis into a co-ed sport. And boy, you know, we could do that for basketball, we could do it for baseball, all kinds of things. So I give her credit for that, even as I admit that it hasn't exactly caught on <laughs> as a business um, a business proposition. So you mentioned her husband. What kind of marriage did she have? Uh, complicated. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I did not talk to Larry King. I've seen him interviewed on on television, and, and my sense is that he he knew that she had issues with her sexuality, and she did too. But it wasn't so easy in the 1960s or 70s to be very forthcoming about that. It still isn't easy today, especially for sports figures. So I think they had a marriage that really was devoted to Billie Jean King. And uh, and it, it stayed together for, for quite a while. Uh, and he was enormously helpful to her. It was like having a, a full-time manager in a way that other women tennis players didn't have. And it reminds me of Amelia Earhart, whose husband, George Palmer Putnam, was a publisher, but also her promoter. And that's one reason why we remember her, because she got so much more publicity. And I think Larry King was, and this is not the Larry King on TV for people who don't know. Right, right. Um, but he was enormously important to her. Uh, and, and then at some point, just as they grew older and she was in a committed relationship, it, it became time to end the marriage, and, and they did. Uh, but he was, he was very important. And in a lot of ways, I think he pushed her on some of these early feminist things. Um, for example, he had a tennis scholarship at the University of California, and she didn't. And, and he said to her, Billy, you're a much better player than I am. Why, you know, why is it that I have this scholarship and I'm not very good and you don't? And so he's really always pushing her. So I think he's an important player in the story. Hmm. So if, um, so if one of the, the kind of key moments in her life is the uh, – the Battle of the Sexes match. Another one is the suit uh, filed by her her former lover. Uh, I think it was 1981, maybe. Um, suit for her, not superficially about um, real estate and about uh, some kind of uh, monetary contribution from from Billie Jean King. But how did she respond to that, and how did she end up? growing comfortable with her sexual identity and, and the public nature of her sexual identity? Well, I think, you know, first to go back to 1981 yeah. when this happened, we're more used to the idea of public figures being outed, you know, even that phrase, although I don't like that phrase. Mm -hmm. um, I think she was one of the first who was subjected to this kind of public, you know, being blindsided by a suit. Uh, and how, how hard that must have been. Uh, and then to have to go public and admit, she didn't write it first, but then she did, that she had had an affair and she called it a mistake. And she had Larry sitting there by her side. Um, but she just looked miserable. And it must have just been an awful, awful moment. And it then took her almost another 15 or 20 years to really come to grips with her sexuality. And I think it's partly her, she came from a conservative Southern California family, and it was just not something you talked about. And it also, in that period in, in U.S. history and American culture, gay issues didn't have the visibility they do now. And I think there's a real kind of shift in the 1990s. And at that point, she's 
in her, I guess, in her 50s. But it somehow just gives her enough courage and support to confront what she's been aware of her whole life. And so, much to my surprise, here's yet another case where the life of a historical figure turns out to be a way of charting the changing attitudes and acceptance for gay people in American society. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she really, at the end of her life, then benefits from this uh, and embraces it and has been embraced in turn by the by the gay community. And of course, she will be one of the uh, American leading the delegation um, to Russia uh, mm-hmm. next month, uh, which seems perfectly appropriate. This, this last year actually has been interesting in this respect, to me at least, because we've had Brittany Griner come out kind of casually, I think in a Sports mm-hmm. Illustrated article, which got relatively little attention. Well, they don't care when it's women. Well, that's, that actually assumes was, they're lesbians anyway. Well, that, that's kind of what I'm driving at, because I was <laughs> going to say that the, the, the big story this past year was the uh, African-American NBA player mm-hmm. who came out. What, how, why is it, or maybe I should say, how has this issue of lesbianism and women's sports played out in the, in the period that Billie Jean King was active? Well, it certainly was a factor when she was setting up the um, women's professional tour in the 70s. She was convinced that if there was any suggestion that the women's players more than many of them were lesbians, and they may or may not have been. Clearly, there were some. Uh, But this would have damaged what she was trying to do to build up credibility and support. Uh, And I think it's something that is just, it's a given in women's sports that there's an assumption that a girl or a woman who's interested in sports, that there's something different about her or deviant. And so, you know, and then it manifests itself and, you know, these girls trying to look especially feminine while they play, the ponytails and the, the pink ribbons, you know, in their hair when they're sweating like crazy running up and down the court to show that they're women. But they feel like they have to do that because there's an assumption that questions them. What I'm hoping is, as these younger generations grow up who are much more comfortable with a range of people accepting their gay sexuality, that they'll just say, well, who cares? You know, who cares on our team? And that would be a, a huge breakthrough. And I think it is really starting to happen. And that's that's been the impression in some of the male team sports. You know, if the, if the guy's a good player and he's doing his, you know, doing what he needs to do for the team, who cares if he's gay? That's a huge breakthrough. Um, but I think it, it always has been somewhat different for women. Um, and I think they just, in their own individual ways, try to confront the stereotypes. Um, but it's still going on. So let me give you a chance to kind of summarize some things here as we get close to the end. And so the first question in that regard I'd have is, is in the book you seem to suggest that there were opportunities missed in women's sports uh, in the 70s as it emerged as kind of a full-fledged moving toward e- kind of uh, activity that's moving toward equality. Um, how do you see the state of women's sports now? Are there are there directions that you would have liked to have seen women's sports go that that were not taken? Well, I think there have been some real trade-offs, and I I'm afraid that women's sports at the high at the elite level, the most competitive, is now becoming more and more like men's sports. So it's only available to a tiny, tiny percentage of people who can play at that level, and it sometimes is now having some of the issues of, you know, just focusing too much on the game. There's certainly injuries that come with it, but not necessarily so good. I think the lost moment is that what my vision for women's sports is really, in some ways it goes back to the view of the old phys ed teachers, uh, which is sports for everybody and hoping to encourage people to have lifelong activities that they learn as kids 
and that they keep doing their whole life. And so what that means is having a broad expansion of having intramural sports for those, most of us who couldn't make an elite team, having recreational leagues in the towns where we live, having them open to both men and women, and really encouraging people to see physical activity as an important part of their life. What I'm afraid of with these, with the athletes, male, and now it's happening with the women, is when they train only in one sport and they start early and they train so hard and they get to their mid-20s and they've already blown out both their knees, they're going to end up with arthritis. That, to me, and it's going to happen to the women as well as the men. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is is not necessarily a good outcome. Um, But when I see people, you know, adult women playing on a recreational softball league, that's great. <laughs> you know, it's just being active. It's being, or people out cross country skiing or, or running the New York marathon. Um, that, that's really, that's more my vision. Uh, and I think you, you, you've got to, I think that the Title IX helped both of those, but unfortunately it really, in terms of elite competition, is pushing the women much closer to the men's model. The other thing I see you saying in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I, I believe you pointed out that the National Organization of Women was one of the few organizations in the 70s that, that wanted to see Title IX implemented in a way that would allow mixed-gender teams. Mm-hmm. And you seem to suggest that perhaps we need to rethink that as an option. Am I right in reading that? Yeah, I, and I, I find myself just way out on a limb on this one <laughs> because it it seems to me so obvious that there are many women who outperform many men in lots of sports, and yet the way that the sports world is organized, you never see that because the women only compete against women and the men only compete against men and i think it partly comes out of my my background as a as a runner and you know when you when i ran the new york marathon i finished right in the middle of the pack not the middle of the women's pack just the middle of the pack and i think it always gave me a sense that there's just a range of athletic ability and and gender is not necessarily the most important way to draw the line and yet this the um the belief that women's teams and men's teams have to be separate is is a pretty strong one and i i find that when i when i talk about this i i get a lot of pushback from people and yet there are examples like rugby teams that are coeducational and mm-hmm. we see you know girls who are strong enough and big enough to play football and um but i think there are still some real lingering doubts about whether women can or should play, especially some of the more violent sports like football and boxing. And I'm not sure anybody should be playing football. But if people are, and if a girl wants to, I say let her decide, uh, you know, more power to her. So you mentioned it at the beginning, and and I think it was an accurate statement. I I actually... um asked a number of the trainers at our local YMCA what they knew about Billie Jean King, and it was precious little, actually. They knew her name and and, and maybe that she had played tennis. Looking back over the past 40, 50 years, what would you say to them about about Billie Jean King's legacy? Well, I I think that you've nailed why I wrote the book, Mm. because there's a way in which aging sports figures they have a loyal following of people who remember seeing them play and then as those people die off their legacy dies off they sort of mm-hmm. they aren't in history anymore and i think it's because i'm trained as a historian and a biographer what i wanted to do was to take billie jean king and put her in the center of American culture and society from the 1970s on in areas that are of supreme importance to understanding our current world, the changing role of women and the changing role of sports. And my sense is that without a book 
that really tries to deal with her historically, places her in that story, places her in these larger contexts, like the changing attitudes towards uh, towards gay people in American society, that her significance becomes easier to grasp and also has a firmer um, place in history alongside politicians and other prominent people. But if you just leave sports biographies to the journalists and to the fans, that's not enough. And so what I was really trying to do was to write her into history, uh, to really make the case for why she was important as a historical figure as well as an athlete. Um, and to, to me, that was one of the most important contributions to the book. So that was really what I was trying to do. And so I hope that if someone encountered this book 20 years from now and had never heard of Billie Jean King, mm-hmm. but then sat down to read about what she had done and could then make these links to how much it changed, but how much still needed to be done, then I did the job that I set out to do. Well, it's a wonderful book, and I learned an enormous amount from it. Um, and we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so let me just conclude with the question we conclude most of these interviews with, and and that's pretty simple. You've written this biography. You've moved past the project at least a little. What are you working on now? Well, it's not going to be in sports. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just couldn't find another topic. And I I really sort of have my eye on the uh, centennial of the women's suffrage amendment in 2020 Mm. and uh, thinking about why why suffrage matters and thinking about the suffragists who were literally willing to die for the cause in the 19 teens and how to make that come alive to audiences and sort of use it as a way of thinking again about how much has changed for women and yet how much still remains to be done. I have no idea how this is going to work out. I'm sure it will have some biography, a lot of history, hopefully a narrative that will appeal to general readers as well as professors and teachers, because I think it's a fascinating story. But the main thing is, it's the one that's caught my attention. And if I've learned anything over the course of my long career, I just have to follow my heart. (laughs) Indeed. Well, it sounds like a great project, and I hope when it's done, you'll come back on the show. I'll be glad to. But I just wanted to say thank you so much. It's been a wonderful interview. Thanks so much for talking with us, and um, and uh, hopefully we'll hear from you again. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Susan Ware, author of the new book, Game, Set, Match, Billie Jean King and the Revolution in Women's Sports. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back to listen to us again. In the meantime, I wish you a great month.